So, yes, as, as Rob said, you can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 45 and finishing the chapter today. And I, I wanted to say, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to uh, head over to the welcome tent today, you can grab one, take it home with you, and enjoy it. So we have Bibles if you, if you need one. So as I said, we'll be starting at verse 45. We get to hear this incredible account of Jesus walking on the water. And it's a favorite for many people, right? Who, who sees this as a favorite, favorite miracle, for sure? And uh, it is probably quite familiar for most of you, but my hope this morning is that we would receive from the timeless word of God something that would speak right into the times that we're living in. And this message, just as Rob said, I believe is going to be helpful, especially if you've come here today with a tired and weary soul. Uh, God is faithful to show himself powerful and authoritative and, and kind in the midst of those difficulties. So let's pray, and then we'll get right into the word. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for your word. Open it up to us now that we might receive wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boats and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So here we see, as we pick up, that word immediately that we've seen often in the Gospel of Mark. And when re you read that word immediately, it's supposed to signal to you that we're about to read another work of Jesus. And so the last work that we saw Jesus do was where he fed 5,000 plus people on a single serving of bread and fish. And that miraculous multiplying of food for the multitudes showed again that Jesus is powerful, that he's authoritative, and that he's the son of God. And what this was doing was attracting more and more attention to Jesus. Uh, I'd say probably at this point now in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus is kind of at the top, at the height of his public ministry, where his popularity has really gained and there's a lot of attraction toward him. We've seen as the crowds have been chasing him literally all around the Sea of Galilee just to be with him. But one thing we see repeated throughout Mark's gospel is that Jesus wasn't so much as interested in this kind of popularity. You know, not, not in the way that we think of popularity. Jesus wasn't there just to become some Galilean celebrity, if you will. What Jesus came to do when he came to the earth was with a singular purpose. He came so that he could endure to the cross for the sins of the world. That's why he came. And if, if Jesus ever got the sense that people were trying to detract him from that purpose or any part of the Father's will, Jesus was out of that situation. And so when we read, in fact, in John's gospel, that same account of the feeding of the 5,000, we see that after he fed the multitude, that the crowds tried to make him their king. It actually said in Mark 6, 15, that they tried to take him by force and make him king. And we know that during this time, there was great political tension that exists in this region, that the Romans were ruling over the Jewish people, and, and the Jews were wanting to have some conquering and victorious king to rise up and to overthrow the Roman government and to establish their own rule and reign in Jerusalem. 
Yet Jesus, when he perceived the intention of the disciples to pull them in, pull Jesus into their, you know, political agenda, if you will, Jesus was out of that situation. In fact, it says that he made the disciples get in the boat in verse 45, and then he went into the mountains by himself. When it says there in verse 45 that he made the disciples get in the boat, other translations might say that he constrained them. It's as if Jesus said to them, you, right now, get in the boat, go. And, and what I sense is that the disciples perhaps were also buying in to this thinking that Jesus was somehow going to be their earthly ruler. See, but Jesus brought a different kingdom, a kingdom that is spiritual, a kingdom that is eternal. And Jesus wanted his disciples to see and to seek the kingdom of God and not to get carried away with what the crowds were wanting to have Jesus be. And so he constrained the disciples. He said, get in the boat and go to the other side. He said, basically, head over to Bethsaida. I'm going to stay here and send off the crowds after he just fed the 5,000, and then I'll meet you over there. And what I love about this is that Jesus had perfect hospitality. You know, he just fed the 5,000 people, and he was not going to eat and run. <laughs> he stayed there, and he dismissed every last one of them, even after they're trying to forcibly make him their king. And then verse 46, it says, that after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now at this point in time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus and the disciples still needed that rest that they were looking for. The whole reason they went to the other side of Galilee was to go to a desolate place to rest a while. Because in Mark 6.31, we read that they were doing so much ministry that they didn't have enough time to eat. And so even though Jesus and the disciples weren't able to enter into that rest, uh, Jesus seemed to still want that time to just rest and to be with his Father. And that's why it says that he went into the mountains to pray. And Jesus did this with regularity, you know. Yeah, he had a public ministry, but man, he had a private devotion to his Father. And he would often go to these places, gone for hours, even days at a time, just to spend time with his father. And he really wanted his disciples to get this, to see this practice of his, and to, to follow his example in that. And if I can remind you again, as I said last week, is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, it is part of our discipleship that we rest. And maybe... You heard last week that, you know, there's all the busy demands of life, and as a disciple of Christ, you should get away sometimes and rest a while, and that sounded good, but you're still not finding that. If I could just encourage you again to seek it and to find it, because it's easy for me to convince you that you need rest. Do you know why it's easy for me to convince you that you need it? Because if Jesus, the Son of God, needed rest, how much more do you think you and I need it? And so that's what Jesus does. He retreats. And how does he find rest? He goes and prays. I, I hope that in my life, 
that I would see prayer as rest. You know, a lot of times I see prayer as work. And, and sometimes prayer is work. I like to define prayer sometimes as soul sweat. You know, a good workout of the soul where you're leaving these things before the Lord so that he might hear you and answer you. But, but I want prayer in my life and in my uh, devotion to God to be a place of rest, of belonging with God. And so I'm just amazed and humbled at how often Jesus retreated to pray because ministry for him was go, go, go. And yet he needed these times to seek the Father's direction because, listen guys, this is an important principle in the kingdom of God that I found to be so true, is that the ministry of Jesus was not based upon needs. As much as you might think that the ministry of Jesus was just him meeting everybody's needs. Did he do that? Yes. But Jesus' ministry was not based on needs. It was based on calling. Jesus would only do what the Father told him to do. He was about God's purpose. And if Jesus was going to fulfill the mission and the purpose that God has sent him for, he needed to spend time with his Father. See, the needs of people is always going to be there. The constant demand and onslaught uh, of fulfilling the great needs that surround us, they will always be there. However, conversely, time with God, time to withdraw, time to seek the Father's will, time to be alone in prayer, those things aren't going to happen by accident. Who's ever read their Bible by accident? Who's ever prayed by accident? These are things that must purposefully be sought out. I've looked at a feed by accident. I, I've, I've, you know, there's a lot of things that I've done by accident, but, but these spiritual practices that God wants us to have are so important because personal and private devotion to God has to be prioritized it's not going to just happen on its own and you can be busy with a lot of good things but even good things can choke out the intimacy that you need to have with god see public ministry is always going to threaten to overtake private devotion and let me tell you this is that you cannot effectively have one without the other you won't have a heart for God if you don't have a heart for people. And if you don't have a heart for people, you won't have a heart for God. You need both. And Jesus understood that his prayer life greatly influenced his public life. Those times of devotion, as much as it feels sometimes like it, it needs to be a sought-after discipline, as I said, we hope that these things would become just entering into the rest of our master. However, if, if we miss out on these things, we miss what God can really effectively do through us. So Jesus went into this mountain and he prayed, and he, he prayed for, I imagine, his disciples. And, and we should be praying to the Father about those that we're ministering to. I, I just was talking to my friend Nicole this last week, and she said something that reminded me and, and convicted me, really, is how, 
how often do we spend time talking to people about God? I mean, I do, I do that a lot. I'm a pastor. I talk to people about God. But how much time do I spend talking to God about people? And, you know, perhaps our effectiveness in reaching people would be that much greater if we talked a little bit more to God. And God desires that that's not supposed to be some heavy burden. That's supposed to be rest. And so verse 47, it says, When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So some time had now passed. The disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, at its widest point, is about eight miles. And they're maybe in the middle of the lake. So they're about four miles right smack in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they've gone that far, four miles. They've got another four to go. And it is the middle of the night. Jesus is still on the land. He's in the mountains praying in the mountains surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was praying to the Father. Now, before we get into the actual events that took place on the Sea of Galilee, I want to make one more point about prayer. You guys down with that? Okay. Is that, don't you wish that we had more recorded prayers of Jesus? You know, we have that great prayer in John chapter, John chapter 17 called the high priestly prayer. It's a wonderful prayer if you've never read it. It's amazing. But we don't have that many recorded prayers of Jesus, at least not long prayers. But how wonderful would it be if we had that? Can I tell you the reason why I think we don't have many recorded prayers of Jesus? It's because he often prayed alone. His prayer life was private. His prayer life was secret. It was with the Father alone. And God heard all those prayers about Jesus, uh, from Jesus, but his disciples didn't necessarily hear them to write them down. Which makes me think of an amazing point of application for us, which is that so much of our Christian life goes unrecognized by other people. But God always keeps a record. You know, you might pray publicly, and that's a good thing. I think all Christians should learn how to pray in front of other people. But would Christians learn to pray privately? And when you pray privately and no one else hears, you know who hears? God hears. And I imagine that so much of our Christian life is actually private and secret that no one else sees except for God, and God cherishes that. God cherishes the fact that our Christian life is just not something that is public, but not, not at all private. He wants both. And so we should seek that. Now, verse 48, getting down now to the events that unfold on the Sea of Galilee, it says, He saw as they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. And so he sees the disciples now in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is on the mountain. You can kind of picture it. He's there praying, and it says that he sees his disciples. Now, commentators differ about whether Jesus physically saw his disciples on the sea. Maybe from his vantage point, it's a full moon, you know, lit night. He could see that little boat out there and watch them. Others say that maybe, you know, he had a vision of his disciples, that the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of his disciples struggling and straining against the wind. And I'll just tell you, both are entirely possible. You know why? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so he can see both physically and he can see both spiritually. 
And so however he saw the disciples, he sees them struggling. And what does it say was happening? It says that they were straining against the wind and that it was about the fourth watch of the night. Now the fourth watch of the night is how the Romans kept time. And so it was sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means that for the four miles they'd gone, they'd been rowing for about nine hours. Now, I went kayaking yesterday with my friend Wyatt, and uh, super thankful that we weren't out there nine hours against the wind. Uh, I was fearful that that might have happened, but we were with the wind, and it was about an hour and a half ride. Fantastic. But could you imagine anybody paddleboard, kayak, biking, if you're going against the wind, it's awful, right? Wind is slapping you in the face. The water's coming over the vessel. And the disciples, it says, were painfully making headway. You know, they were giving it everything that they had. And then they were making no forward progress. And guys, can't discipleship feel that way sometimes? When you're giving it everything that you've got, but you're not making much progress. See, any one of us who's been a disciple of Jesus for at least some length of time would know that being a disciple of Christ isn't always smooth sailing on glassy seas. But a lot of times, our walk with Christ has storms and struggles and trials. Jesus said in this life, we would face trials and tribulations of many kinds. And sometimes, our walk with Christ can feel like we're straining. It's like Jesus put you in this boat. He called you into this discipleship and he said, go to the other side. And you're obedient to the command of Jesus to now make forward progress in your life with Jesus. And yet you feel like you're stuck in the middle of your discipleship, making no forward progress, straining against the wind. And there's this thought that's lingering in your mind, and maybe you're afraid to say it, but it's there. You're thinking, where's Jesus right now? I imagine the disciples thinking that he sent us across to Bethsaida, and now we're in this windstorm. Where's Jesus? And certainly sometimes it can feel that way in our walk with Jesus. And sure, we can make the point from the text that you know, Jesus sees you from his vantage point, and he's praying for you. But it feels like Jesus is nowhere to be found. You're struggling. The waves are all around you. And you're even wondering if you're even going to make it across. And yet, even through our voyage of faith, and even though it might be rough at times, we can be guaranteed of a few things, that Jesus sees us, that Jesus cares, that Jesus will come, and that he will safely bring us to eternal shores. Let's see how that happens throughout the story. But before we really get into, you know, the happy ending of the story, I just want to say this for maybe somebody that it might encourage or at least be sympathetic to is that just because you're in the midst of a storm, you're really having difficulty right now in your walk with Jesus, 
It doesn't mean that you are outside of God's plan for you. And it certainly doesn't mean that, that you're not on the path that he has set you on. Remember, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat in the first place. He commanded them to go to the other side. And so they are in the midst of a storm, which is a direct result of their obedience to Jesus. So just because you're in the middle of a storm doesn't necessarily mean that you're out of the will of God. We need to understand that storm comes in our life for all sorts of reasons. Storms can come because of the devil. Storms can come because of our flesh, because of the world. But what we need to realize is that through any storm, and it doesn't matter where it comes from per se, what matters is that we're looking to Jesus in the middle of our difficulties. And so Jesus, seeing them, sees his disciples, and it's dark, and it's late, and the disciples are exhausted, and then he decides to come to them. Now, how does he come? There was only one boat, and he sent his disciples off on it. And so Jesus decides to use the Sea of Galilee like a sidewalk. And he walks out upon the Sea of Galilee. Now, <laughs> some people have suggested that, you know, Jesus was really just walking on a sandbank, and it gave the appearance that he was actually walking on the water. And it's just silly how people try to, you know, explain away the miraculous nature of, of the Bible. When Jesus walked on the water, he was doing a miracle. And what a miracle is, is when God supernaturally interferes with the natural realm. And so he was making every molecule of water obey its creator. Water has a surface tension, and that's why things are able to float on water. And, you know, maybe you know more about that than I do. At least that's why I think things float. But Jesus was able to walk on the water, but this was a full-grown man. Anybody tried walking on water lately? Doesn't work. You know, he's not surfing or anything. He, he's walking. And yet, he's able to stand on the water as the surface tension or something is increasing and pushing up under his feet. And he goes four miles walking out on the Sea of Galilee as he now approaches the boat where his disciples are. And did you notice what it said there at the end of verse 48? Look in your Bible. It says here, as he came walking, that he would have passed them by. That's interesting. And I've read all sorts of thoughts about what that means. And on the surface, you read that, that he would have passed them by. I mean, these guys are struggling. They've been going at it for nine hours, and he's going to just pass them by. Hey, guys. It, it almost seems indifferent. It seems careless to the fact of what these disciples are going through. And listen, if, if you're not careful, you can read these certain aspects of the story and with an unbelieving and bitter heart, you can start to think that you know what God's thought process is in the midst of your storms. That when you're going through difficulty, you think, you know, Jesus has just sent me away. He doesn't actually want to be with me. He just wants to be alone. You know, Jesus just somehow kind of enjoys watching me in the struggle. And, and, you know, he waits nine hours to actually do anything about my situation. And then when he actually comes to do something, it's like he actually just kind of wants to walk right on past me. But I, I can tell you with confidence that that's, that's not what Jesus thinks. 
Sometimes we think that's what God thinks about us when we're going through our difficulties. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing here is that it's absolutely vital at this point that the disciples understand Jesus for who he really is. That they see him clearly as the son of God. See, God can use our storms, our difficulties to reveal himself to us with greater clarity. And can anybody say amen to the fact that it's often through the hard places and the hard seasons of our lives that we come out the other end with such a greater picture and understanding of who Jesus is. Amen from anybody? Amen. So verse 49 and 50 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So they're rowing, and they think they see a ghost. And the big burly fisherman let out a scream like a little girl, and they think that they've seen a ghost. It's the word phantasma. They think they see a phantom on the water. But as Jesus approaches them, what does he say? He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And man, we could spend the rest of our time on these words, and, and we will as we come to a close pretty soon here. I want you to think about these words. You want to know what I think the coolest thing about these words that Jesus said are? I think the coolest thing is that when he spoke to his disciples, he didn't say his name. He didn't say, take heart, it is Jesus, do not be afraid. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It makes me think of, you know, if you're a parent and you've raised kids that if your child cries out into the night, you spring up out of bed and you go to, to attend to their cry. And you know, I'll come up to my son or my daughter, I'll say, it's okay, daddy's here, daddy's here. And, and just simply by my voice, it brings a calming presence over my child. And, and I think about John chapter 10 uh, that talks about Jesus as our good shepherd and our relationship to him as sheep. And how do the sheep know their shepherd? They hear his voice. See, they heard the voice of Jesus, and without Jesus even having to say his name, he just had to say, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, and they knew that it was him. And that's really where we want to be as disciples, where we know the voice of God, where we know when he's speaking to us, and that he just has to be present to calm our storms, to be with us in our difficulties. But one other thing about this statement or the, this way that he spoke to them, he says, it is I. That, that word is I can be translated ego eme, which is the Greek translation of the words I am or the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I am. He's saying, Yahweh. Think about when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and Moses asked God's name and he says, I am that I am. And then later in Moses' life, he really wanted to see God. He said, God, can I see? And God said, you, you can't see me or else you would die. And so God then decides, though, that he's going to show Moses his glory. And what does he do? He puts him in the cleft of this rock. And then do you remember what God does? He passes him by. 
and Moses sees his glory. Now, when Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee and he meant to pass them by, what do you think he was doing? He was intending to show his disciples his glory. He was intending so that his disciples would see because it's really critical at this point in this time and ministry of Jesus because things are ramping up. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. He will be buried, but then he will raise from the dead. And he's predicted his death for the disciples a number of times, but they're still not getting it. And so it's absolutely essential that the disciples are seeing Jesus for who he is as the son of God, as the I am, as Yahweh, as the son of God. But they weren't getting it. But verse 51, it says, he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded see he speaks to them he calms their troubled souls and then he steps over the railing of that boat and instantaneously the storm is stilled and the disciples are mesmerized i love what the new king james version says about their reaction it says that they were greatly amazed within themselves beyond measure and marveled It's a whole bunch of words strung together to basically say that the disciples were undone before Jesus. Matthew's account tells us that they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus and said, truly you are the son of God. In this moment, they're really now seeing him for who he is. Guys, I'm talking to us too. Our world needs disciples who see Jesus clearly for who he is. In this moment that we're living right now, we need to know him. We need to know his voice when he speaks. We need to know his nature and his attributes. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's absolutely essential that throughout history, the disciples of Christ know Jesus, the real Jesus, for who he really is. That he is the authoritative, powerful son of God. But verse 52 tells us about the disciples that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. How many things do we perhaps miss of Jesus because our hearts are hard to him? How forgetful can we be as disciples to to forget the previous works that Jesus has done? I mean, listen, as a church, can I just go through what we've understood already about Jesus in these few short months that we've been together as we've studied the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus drove out an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He healed many who were sick and oppressed, and he cleansed a man of leprosy. Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic man that is lowered through the roof by his friends, and he forgives him of his sins. Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calmed the storm. And this was an entirely different one than the one we're reading about right now. He's already done this for his disciples. Mark chapter 5, he cast out a demon from like the scariest dude ever. Uh, healed a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and then raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. 
Mark chapter 5, he fed 5,000 plus people with the single serving of bread and fish. And now he's treading upon the water that's threatening to kill the disciples, apparently. And then in verse 53 to 56, we read, When he crossed over, they came to the land of Gethsemane, moored at the shore. They got out of the boat. The people immediately recognized him, ran about the whole region, began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. (laughs) Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, (laughs) you know, church, you call this your church. If this this is the community of faith that you want to grow and know Jesus in, Do we see Jesus for who he really is? The authoritative, powerful son of God. Do you see him as healer? Do you see him as your teacher? Do you see him as your Lord and your savior, as your friend, that you are a citizen of his eternal kingdom, that he is our king? Because at this point in Jesus's ministry, the disciples are shocked to see Jesus walking on the water. When it says that they were marveling beyond measure, I don't think that's actually a really uh, positive description of what's going on. Because faith would say, of course Jesus showed up in our difficulty. Faith says, of course this is how Jesus works and moves. Of course Jesus saves people. Of course Jesus calms storms. This is what Jesus does. But do we have hardened hearts to miss God's perfect track record of faithfulness when he again and again and again comes through for his disciples. Why, as disciples, would we be fretting or worse, fearful of any given situation? Our response to Jesus ought to always be worship because he is always faithful. Now, as we end here, just want to reflect on one last thing that happened. What happened when Jesus got into their boat? And when I mean this, what I'm speaking about is that the boat, the vessel, is a, is a metaphor. It's a picture of your life. Anyone who is a follower of Christ knows that when you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit then dwells in you. And Jesus said, lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the ages that you know that if you've received Christ, you have God with you always. And if you have not received Christ in that way yet, if you've not repented of your sin and the primary one being a hardened heart of unbelief, would you turn from that hardened heart of unbelief and see Jesus clearly for who he really is and for what he's really done and that he came from heaven to earth He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on a cross to remove your sins, to forgive your sins. He was buried to conquer death because the grave could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and from his vantage point, he sees everything, and he is living to make intercession for you. He is praying for you right now. In fact, if you don't know Jesus yet, right now he's praying to the Father, get him, God. (laughs) Get him. 
He's constraining you right now. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. If you're not in the boat yet with Jesus, get in the boat. If you don't have Jesus in your boat yet, ask him to board your vessel. And when you do, the storms will cease. Straining will come to an end. You will be comforted and you will worship and you will effortlessly make it to eternal shores, which is heaven, which is where God takes those who he has called to himself. And he's promised to get you there. Even if you're in the middle of the storm and it feels like you're making no progress at all, God has promised that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will get you to where he said he is taking you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. God, I pray right now as we enter into worship, Lord, that we truly would see you as the Son of God, as the I am. God, I want to hear your voice with great clarity. I want to I want to have that personal devotion with you, God, and I pray that over my brothers and sisters here, Lord. And, and I want to pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, God, if you are leading anybody right now to enter into that relationship with you, to become a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, I pray with great constraining, Lord, you would cause them to say, I believe. I want what that pastor is talking about right there. And if that's you and you'd like to receive Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, would you just raise your hand up over your head so that I can know that we should be praying for you and walking with you. I see you right over there. Praise the Lord. Anybody else would like to receive Jesus today as God, Savior, and friend? Raise your hand. If you raise your hand right over there, let, let's pray this prayer. And, and, and I'm also going to pray a prayer for anyone who just needs Jesus to come into their difficult season and bring a little bit of, um, of ease to their hard, hard and difficult time. Lord God, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I turn from a hardened heart of unbelief and I say, I believe you, Jesus. I believe your words and your actions. I believe that you died on a cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead to give me eternal life. I want to enter into this discipleship relationship with you. And I want to go with you to the other side. I want you to take me to where you're going. So be my God, be my Savior, and be my friend. And anybody who just feels like you're straining right now, struggling in this season of your discipleship, we'd love to lay hands and pray for you. And so don't hesitate. We'll be right over here to pray and walk, walk with you. Amen? Let's all stand up together and worship.